This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by two leading physicians, surgeons. We've got Dr. Alfred Atanda and Dr. Sukhan Shaw on the phone today on the podcast. Uh, we're going to ask him four to five questions about practice in the context of COVID-19 and more and telehealth and what they're seeing and what they're doing and more. Um, let me ask you to take a moment, doctors, to introduce yourselves. Dr. Atanda, let me start with you and then Dr. Shaw. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate you guys making the time for us. Um, my name is Alfred Atanda. I'm a uh, sports medicine surgeon at uh, DuPont Children's Hospital, and uh, I've been doing telemedicine now for the past five years or so. Oh, fantastic. So you were in on, tel on telemedicine and spine earlier than a lot of people. And, and Dr. Shah, take a moment to introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks for having us, Scott. Um, my name is Sukhan Shah. I'm a pediatric spine surgeon. I work at Nemours Alfred I DuPont Hospital for Children along with Alfred and uh, 16 other pediatric orthopedic surgeons. Um, it's a quaternary hospital center. Uh, we get referrals from all over the world for uh, both common and rare pediatric orthopedic problems. And um, featuring telemedicine as part of our practice even pre-COVID was instrumental in how we were able to uh, scale up during the crisis. And, and, and Namar DuPont has one of the great international reputations in pediatrics. Talk to us about, and I'll start with you, Dr. Tonda, and, and then go to Dr. Shaw. What does practice look like in the COVID-19 era, particularly pediatrics, and particularly a place where you had an international reputation where people come to see you internationally? How does that look, and how does telehealth start to play into that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a it's a fantastic time to be in the telemedicine space. Um, as as we said, that you know we've been kind of being pioneers in this space as an organization for several years, um, and it, it did allow us to really kind of hit the ground running, let's say. And in the COVID nineteen era, as you know, um, staff, patients, providers, uh, everybody is trying to stay home and minimize exposure. So. Basically, what we're doing now is finding ways to move knowledge and information and data as opposed to moving people. And, uh, you know, given our, you know, national and international reputation, um, the fact that we're very savvy in telemedicine has helped because we can still get um, opinions and consultations and, and high quality advice and care uh, to patients in, in, in a broader scale as well as providers uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. So, you know, there's a couple of hiccups uh, maybe for a couple of days when we kind of switched over, but I think as an organization, we hit the ground running very, very seamlessly and flawlessly um, compared to a lot of organizations who not only had to, to switch gears, but even just figure out what telemedicine was and how to do it. Um, but I think for us, it, it was quite the easy transition. And, and let me ask you a follow-up question, Dr. Tonda. What about x-rays, images, things that you typically need to see for orthopedics and so forth? How does that work? How does that play into this while you're doing lots of telemedicine consults and so forth? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, luckily for us in orthopedics, um, a lot of the images, specifically x-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, are all digitized. Um, and in, in the vein of moving knowledge and information, you can move images very easily as well. Um, so a lot of times we have folks get imaging x-rays and, and different things in their local communities, and they have those images kind of pushed to us electronically. Um, so they may be in their home, I may be in my home or in my office, and I can evaluate those images and then evaluate them all virtually. 
um, you know, and then a lot of other specialties um, where you need a lot of peripheral devices like otoscopes and ophthalmoscopes and blood pressure cuffs. Um, that may not be so easy, although there are some workarounds for that as well. Um, but being in the orthopedic space and relying heavily on imaging has been very fortuitous for us um, in these times. And, 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 and Dr. Shaw, you had not been doing as much telehealth as Dr. Tonda to start with. How has the ramp up looked for you and how has that felt? Well, um, I, I've, I've embraced it um, because several weeks ago the rules changed, right? We couldn't have people come to our office or to the hospital, and we also wanted to protect ourselves and our staff and our coworkers. And so we have to provide a virtual way of providing safe care. And um, I've always been very reliant on my observational skills, and one big piece missing from telemedicine is the ability to put your hands on a patient and do a physical exam. And in this virtual space, we just have to be a little bit more clever, clever, a little bit more observational, ask the parents to participate a little bit more along with the patient, and do things for us that serve as a proxy for the exam. So I, I think that having some experience in it helped, um, but we just have to be uh, creative and, and provide some ingenuity in, in, in an innovative area. And, and let me ask you, Dr. Tana, question to start with, how much telehealth are you doing? How many visits a day does it feel like? Can you measure that versus the, what you were doing in your office before? What, what's the quantity of visits? Yeah. Just to get um, a broad sense. Pre-COVID, it was probably anywhere between five uh, to 10 a week. And now it's probably, you know, 10 or more a day, um, just because that's mostly the way that I can still provide care. So um, a lot of my partners uh, who may not have been doing much at all pre-COVID, I think, are up in those same numbers um, per day, just because we have the infrastructure and the administrative support to get people turned on. So even though I was a little bit more advanced and have been doing it longer, I think we're all, um, you know, doing several visits a day, um, just trying to keep up with the care that we're providing. And, and, and Dr. Shah, a question for you. Are, are you doing this out of your offices? Are you doing it from home or a mix of both? How does that look? And do you have the assistance and staff you need to be able to manage this? Because 10 a day, you know, is not insignificant. How, how does that work in terms of managing that? Sure. I think logistics are really important to making it smooth. Uh, Pre-COVID, I would do it from my office, and I would do it on days I was already seeing patients, you know, and dressed for it and the whole, the whole deal already in the clinic to look at the x-rays. Now I'm doing it from home uh, because we've gone to teams in which we're only exposing our staff uh, to the hospital environment for a week at a time, and so that if we had to self-quarantine or if someone became ill, they wouldn't have, be pressured to work. So during that off period, we're, we're doing telemedicine uh, within our subspecialties. And so uh, just, like, just like Al said, yeah, I think I saw uh, 14 today, and it was, it was, a, it was a busy day. Um, the caveats I would say is don't get too ambitious first. Almost schedule uh, 30 minutes per patient to start. That seems like a ridiculous amount of time, especially for orthopedic surgeons that are used to seeing patients at 10-minute intervals with multiple rooms. There's only one room, and here it's new to you, it's new to the patient. You need some time to get the hiccups worked out, and then when you're feeling uh, more efficient, you can go down to 20 minutes or even 15 minutes. I haven't uh, broken the 15-minute barrier, and I'm telling you, I think it's, it's on top of each other. They're like multiple jets landing at once when you're trying to do it every 15 minutes, and I, I find it 
I find it challenging and exciting to stay on time. In, in terms of the use of your professional assistants, your staff, your administrative assistants, how important are they? And I know it differs based on how young or old a physician you are. It's a similar in other professional worlds. How important are they are to keeping you on track to make sure the patient's there virtually when they're supposed to be there? How does the patient wait for you or vice versa? Yeah, Scott, that's a very important part of the technique. Um, so we have uh, we would use a team approach where my nurse practitioner would actually scan the patients a week or two weeks ahead of time, who's appropriate, who would be facile in this technology, who do we already have a good rapport with. The best patients to start with are patients you've seen before, they've seen you before, you know them well, and they're and you know they'll be facile with this technology. Now we're seeing everybody, whether it's a new patient or established patient, but there's a lot of work on the back end to see who's appropriate. Then um, we have an infrastructure uh, in place to uh, teach them how to download the application, almost do a virtual test and do a practice visit with our medical assistant to make sure they're good for the day of. We also make sure that their uh, radiology is properly loaded up so that we can view it on our PAC system. And then the last piece is we have a tip sheet, how to prepare for the visit, ensure proper lighting, where are you going to be, what are you going to wear, prepare the questions you have beforehand. And when they're prepared, the visit goes beautifully. And so if you had 15 visits today, how many of those ran on time and as you expected? And this will be a ramping up period, not just for you, but for patients too, for them to understand how to do this right. Well, today I think was a great day. Uh, there were only two hiccups. One mother who was working from home um, forgot about the appointment uh, and her daughter reminded her about 20 minutes later. So she showed up into the waiting room a little late. And because I had that little bit of cushion, I was able to see her before the three o'clock that I actually had. The second hiccup was um, you know, some technology issues. I think in some areas of the country, uh, there may be tremendous demands on your bandwidth. And um, the, in the middle of the day, you know, our internet might be a little slow or some people may not be working off of Wi-Fi and more of a cellular type of signal. And so sometimes technology uh, trips, up, trips us up a little bit. Sometimes it's just, you know, typical busy day. Some people forget. Certainly. And, and Dr. Atanda, in terms of bedside manner and how you manage working with patients and so forth, any difference than the in-person visits and any tips on how you do that so it works well? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, that's one of the big um, barriers to adoption for telemedicine. Um, people feel that they lose that kind of personal connection uh, when they're interacting with a patient. Um, what I've done or what I've tried to do um, is try to make that as realistic, similar to the in-person visit as possible. Um, the different things I do is I try to make sure that I'm always looking at the camera. Um, if you're on a computer and it's a big screen, oftentimes you find yourself looking at the screen as opposed to looking at the camera. But when you're looking at the screen, then what the patient sees is that you're not looking at them. Um, if I do look away, like look at their chart or look at x-rays, I try to tell them ahead of time, um, hey, I'm going to be looking away. I'm not, you know, trying to, to distract um, my attention away from you. Um, I try to do it in a place that's quiet. That way I can focus on them. You know, I keep my kids and my cats out of the room and things like that if I'm at home. Um, that way I can really focus on them. And I try to get them to do that as well because, you know, lots of these kids have siblings and what have you. Um, 
also I try to to wear something I would normally wear. So I wear scrubs to work most of the time. So that's what I wear when I'm at home. And I, and I just keep the situation as realistic as what they would get if they came in person. Um, I feel like what Sukin said, if, if you're utilizing this for patients that you already know, that you have a rapport with, that you've examined, that you maybe you've operated on in the past, that definitely helps a lot with, with the bedside manner and, and, and just the, the personal effect. Um, it is a bit tougher with newer patients, but I think, um, you know, if you pay attention to details and, and just try and set yourself up for success, you can definitely have a good interpersonal relationship with them during the visit. And, and, and let me ask you a follow-up question to that. You, you mentioned wearing scrubs at home, really dressing, acting like you're in your regular office environment. What kind of structural things? How much do you, is that important to your mental mindset to be sort of focused in the way like you would be in your regular office environment and so? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, doing that helps with the rapport and just the connection, but it also gets me in the mindset that I'm at work, even though I'm at home. And, you know, as we know, at home, there's lots of distractions. So, yeah, I put myself in my office, you know, I close the door, I keep everybody out, I keep it quiet, I wear what I'm supposed to be, what I would be wearing normally. You know, I have on my computer screens, their electronic medical record, I have my notes in front of me. So for all intents and purposes, you know, it feels um, like I'm at work. Um, but I, I think when I first started working at home several days in a row, it was a bit awkward um, because you kind of get out of your zone a little bit because you realize that you are in your house and not, you know, in your work, whereas you're, where we're used to focusing so much. Um, but I think in time you get used to it. Let me ask you another question. I'm, I'm just so curious about this. For self-management of your practice versus your assistant practicing, are you using your assistant in your team just as much to sort of organize the schedule to make sure you've got the record in front of you, that the record gets in the right place, that billing gets done correctly? I mean, none of these can be done alone. So how, right. does, that, how does that work with your teammate and your, your assistants and so forth? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a sports medicine surgeon, so I work closely with an athletic trainer um, and my secretary. The three of us are, are, are kind of a tight unit. And, you know, we have to maintain that, that close communication now now more than ever just because we're not physically together. Normally, we'd all be in, in close proximity, but now, you know, my um, athletic trainer may be at an off-site, my secretary may be at the main hospital, and I may be at home. Um, so with constant texting, constant emailing, um, we prepare before, you know, the day's clinic visits. They make sure that all the x-rays have been loaded. They let me know any particular, you know, significant or important issues that are coming up with patients that I'm aware of, any issues with moms um, that, I, that I need to get a hold of. Um, but they kind of set me up for success. It, it, let me ask you a question on that. So in a, in a typical pattern, a typical day, mm -hmm. there'd be room before telehealth for lots of error in that because you'd see each other all day. You'd be side by side each day, so you don't need as much of the preparatory call and stuff like that, although it's good, but you might not have done the preparatory full meeting in the morning and stuff like that. Are there some of those things that you're doing now that you might not have done in the office because they weren't so critical because in the office you just saw each other every day? You know, it's funny. I, I don't feel like that kind of workflow has changed all that much. I think um, the folks are still, you know, paying attention to detail. And I think communication is is the key. And that's something that we've always done. It would be, you know, and Sukin has worked with his team for a long time as well. I guess if we hadn't worked with each other, didn't have such a close rapport and didn't kind of 
you know, we work so well as teammates, um, it may be a little bit different, but I mean, I think, you know, the transition from in-person to virtual care and managing the flow of patients has worked pretty seamlessly. Um, I think maybe on their end, they may pay a little bit closer attention that, than I do just because they're responsible for getting everything ready for me. And, um, you know, to me, it works pretty well, but maybe they're working a bit harder because they tend to be the glue that, that holds everything together you know, in the outpatient clinical setting, but um, it seems to work pretty well. Um, and I think, you know, what Sukin said is you set yourself up for success by picking and choosing the patients that are, you know, you have the best relationship with and they have the appropriate clinical problem that'll lend itself to, to being evaluated in this sort of way. Yeah. No, absolutely. And thank you. I think your point on your team being the glue that holds it together is so critical and so true. Uh, Dr. Shah, I, I didn't know if you were going to comment on the same question. Um, I sort yeah. of thought maybe you were starting. We, uh, we've uh, developed some, some, I think, useful techniques that other people may want to consider. Um, one is my medical assistant does a very quick write-up of each patient we're going to see in telemed that morning. And so I'll scan through that. In fact, right before they come into the room, I'll scan that. It would just be like if she came out of the room and said, oh, this is Johnny so-and-so years old. This is his condition. This is the issue. I, I need that before I walk into the room so we can make the efficient easier and we know them, we know the problem. And um, before the initial chit chat or how are things going at home, I think a lot of people like like to be asked how things are going at home. The kids want to know about school, their sports aren't going on, they need to be engaged from the beginning of the visit. So I like to know a little bit of background before I walk in. The second thing we noticed very quickly, just as Al said, is with the constant electronic communication, when you're in telemed, it's very, it was very distracting for me to get questions from my nurse by text or by email because they would instantly come up on the screen. So I said, look, folks, we're going to set up a team huddle at noon every day, before, right after the morning clinic, before the afternoon clinic, where we're just going to talk about patient issues that are coming up during the day. How are we going to reemerge re from this crisis? What patient problems are coming up? Because I was finding it very distracting to put out fires all day. Now we're just going to spend a half hour at noon to do that. And then we go back to our afternoon clinic, and then we spend a little bit of time as a department every day at 3.30 to talk about what are the issues in the hospital, what are the current cases, what are we going to do. And so that communication has been excellent. Um, granted, it's virtual, but it connects us throughout the day, um, and it's very deliberate and very intentional. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to ask you one further question. I'll, I'll start with Dr. Tonda. What yeah. percentage of your practice stays telehealth post sort of the surge or, or post the time at which, I don't know that COVID-19 is going to be really figured out for some time, but what percentage of the practice stays virtual or telehealth post at least this original lockdown period and, and the re-ramping up of practice? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good question. Um, you know, we recently um, started a small research pilot where I wanted to look at um, the percentage of my patients, brand new patients that I see um, that are kind of one-off patients, meaning I see them once and then I don't see them again, meaning we had them rest from their sport or we sent them to therapy and their problem resolved. Because initially I thought that we would try to reserve just post-operative patients and simple follow-ups uh, for telemedicine. But I think now what we're finding is that there are ways that we could potentially have even some of those new patients um, be seen virtually and dealt with and handled um, and kind of provisionally treated. And if their problem persisted, um, you know, they could come back and see us obviously in person. But, you know, initially my gut was 
was probably about 10 to 20 percent of the practice. Um, if we can keep them being virtual, at least in the early stages post-COVID, that would help, you know, bring other folks in who needed to come in, but it would keep some of those patients out to minimize exposure as much as, much as possible. But, you know, as we comb through this data and I, and I look at some of the trends for some of the new sports patients I've seen, I'm discovering that, you know, a lot of the patients um, that I didn't think initially could be managed virtually probably could. So I'm guessing that percentage may go up and it's exciting to see what's, what's going to happen. Um, but obviously we'll start small with our digital health offering as we, we persist past COVID um, and just ramp up as we need to. It's a fascinating point, and and there's the old adage: necessity is the mother of invention. So you didn't think you'd be seeing certain kinds of patients telehealth virtually, but as you have more of this lockdown and more of the situation, it, it ends up blending itself to figure out ways to do so. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, and you know another point uh, that I wanted to make is you know we we've been talking on this whole this whole interview about providers and patients. Um, but one thing that we've noticed that there's a whole world of telehealth out there that has to do with provider to provider communication and consultation. You know, for us in orthopedic surgery, most of our kids that get hurt and fall off of things and get injured, they invariably go to other providers before they come to us. It's usually the emergency room, the urgent care, and their primary care office. Um, your average kid that falls at you know 8 p.m. at home, they can't just get a hold of someone like me because there's a lot of barriers in place. You know, our clinics aren't open and, and that sort of thing. So people are constantly going to the path of least resistance, but unfortunately, they don't have our knowledge and expertise in a lot of those frontline areas. By utilizing telemedicine, and we're piloting this right now with provider-to-provider -provider consultation, we can get our knowledge, our expertise, our advice to those frontline emergency rooms and urgent cares so that patients can go to those places that are in their communities, in their medical homes, be seen, be evaluated, get that high-quality expertise. And some of them may never even have to follow up with us. They can just follow up with their primary care doc, or they may not even need to follow up at all. Um, but the key is being, being able to get our knowledge to the front line. And I think this whole world of provider-to-provider -provider consultation is very important, and it hasn't been explored enough. No, thank you. I know that some like Mayo had started programs around that a couple of years ago. And in the orthopedic space, you, especially pediatric orthopedics, you guys have become leaders around some of that as well. So just fantastic. And Dr. Shaw, the same question for you. What piece of telehealth survives the COVID outbreak? Well, I think uh, people became comfortable with this technology. They're going to continue to use it. I, I, I often just do an impromptu question at the end. Hey, what did you think? Was this good? And, and so many people are appreciative of saving them a trip to the hospital and all the time and aggravation that could involve. I think people with very mild conditions that need reassurance, this is a no-brainer. For patients who live far away, this is a no-brainer. For the virtual second opinion, even a complicated problem that we could look at the scans and do a few provocative maneuvers uh, while observing them and confirm that yes, they need this surgery or yes, they need they, they have this condition, um, it's perfect. And so, uh, as you mentioned before, you know this crisis is is breeding innovation in all kinds of areas, and this is the one that's going to benefit the most. Well, thank you. And, and, and just to wrap up, Dr. Atanda and Dr. Shaw, just one moment on where people could find you in practice, um, name of the hospital, name of the practice again, and, um, and then thank you very much. Dr. Atanda? Yeah, so I'm at uh, Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children based in uh, Wilmington, Delaware in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. 
I'm at the Nemours Alfred High DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware, along with Alfred. I am division chair of Spine and Scoliosis Center. I'm also on Twitter at, at Dr. Sukin Shah and on LinkedIn. Well, fantastic. Uh, doctors, thank you so much for joining us today. Tremendously informative and appreciate all the expertise and education you're bringing to everybody on this. Just fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you, Scott. Appreciate it.